This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And looking at uh, my notes here, it looks like we're going to talk to Ezel, Ralph, David, and Rick to start things off. So, Green punchline number one, let's start with Ezel. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I have I have a couple of questions. Uh, I have uh, quite a few oak trees, and I have a lot of leaves. And um, I, I was wondering, can I, I? I'm making a huge flower bed. Can I yeah. put those leaves on the bottom and then cover them with with uh, garden soil or topsoil? No, or sir. Whatever? No, sir. You no. don't want to do that. You can put the leaves on the top as a mulch. But here's what happens, Ezel. When you when leaves and other organic debris are up on the surface, the microbes that break them down, that turn them into compost, they use a fair amount of nitrogen, which they're able to extract from the air. When we bury those things before they're fully broken down, their source of nitrogen becomes the fertilizer that you put in the soil, and they're going to steal it before the plants get to it. So so that's why I always tell people if you get garden soil or something that has a lot of undecomposed material in it, you've got to fertilize extra heavily to make up for what the microbes are going to grab. But in your case, just go ahead and you know build those beds the way you normally would. The leaves are an excellent mulch on the surface. They're an even better mulch if you can run your mower through them a time or two and chop them up a little bit. But as long as you keep them up on the surface, you don't have to do anything differently. You're getting a good mulch, and they will gradually especially oak leaves, it's very gradually. They're going to break down into compost, and you can work them in at that point. That's a great question. Okay, well, well great. Um, another question is, um, I have, uh, Medina has to go for my hanging baskets. Yeah. Um, I have about um, 20 of them uh-huh. around my trees, and it's quite a job to mix the Medina and pour it <laughs> in and see it run out of the bottom. But right. I also have some espuma or espuma. Uh-huh. Espoma. Espoma. Yeah. Right. Espoma. And is it just as good to put some of that because it's granular on, on? It's a lot, it would be a lot easier and faster for me. It is not quite as good, but it is almost as good. Any granular organic fertilizer is not going to burn. Whether And Espoma makes it. Espoma was actually the first uh, company in this country to start doing a lot of organics over on the East Coast. But whether it's Maestro Grow, whether it's Nature's Creation, whether it's Medina, you can certainly use the dry fertilizers. They don't work quite as quickly as your Medina has to grow well, but they will certainly feed your plants. Now, one thing you might look at next time you're at a good nursery, uh, look, they, there is a, a fun little device called the siphon mixer that you actually hook between the hydrant and the hose. And then you put your has to grow as a concentrate in a bucket. Your siphon mixer has a little tube that comes out that you drop down in that bucket, and it automatically mixes the fertilizer together. So what's coming out the end of the hose you know, is already pre-mixed. And uh, I remember a lot of, a lot of years ago, because these things have been around for many years, but uh, I was mixing my fertilizer in milk jugs. It took me almost two hours to feed my orchid collection at that time. We're going back to the eighth grade, so we're going back a lot of years. But when I got that little siphon mixer, it reduced the time to about five minutes. So 
Um, there are a couple of things you'll need to know about that if you opt to go that way. But if you want to use your has to grow at least periodically, um, one of these little siphon mixers, they cost 15 bucks or something like that, maybe 20 But uh, they enable you to use a liquid fertilizer like that without having to mix it one watering can at a time. So keep that in mind, too. Okay. Okay. Well, great. Yeah, that, that, that will really help. Now, one other question. A friend of mine gave me an American Beauty Berry. Uh-huh. And it was in a pot, and I think it's about four foot tall. And it was outside, and I thought it had frozen, but it's starting to bloom. Yeah. I mean, not bloom, but it's starting to, to bud out, you know, the leaves. Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. Is it too late to cut it down smaller to keep it small? If you, you're going to sacrifice, uh, you know, the buds have already formed. The flower buds have already formed. They're going to make little funny looking little pink flowers. And then that's followed by the green berries, which then turn to that beautiful purple or white, which whatever variety you get in the fall. So if you cut it back now and, and don't feel like you're too late. If you cut it back last fall, you would still be cutting off the flower buds. So, Here's what I do with American Beauty Berry is I wait until those flowers start to open, and then I'll go through the plant selectively, and I forgot a limb here that doesn't have a lot of flowers on it. I cut that one off. I leave the limb over here that has lots of flowers on it, and that way I'm cutting it back but not really interfering with the berry production. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm looking at it right now, and, and what I've got is the leaves. I don't see any any buds on it yet. Yeah, no. The but buds still. buds will come along about buds will come along about six weeks, four to six weeks from now. Okay, and I understand you can grow that in shade or or partial it grows or it grows shade. very well in shade or partial sun. It will survive full sun, but it's happier in partial shade, and it's cold hardy down to at least fifteen degrees. So don't worry about it freezing in a typical winter. It's a very cold hardy plant. Actually, goes wild all over my ranch up outside of Bernie. Okay, so if I wanted to keep it as a container plant, what should what should I do? Same thing you do in the ground. Uh, just remember that in a container, it might be a little bit more susceptible to freezing. So in the very unusual times that we might have the temperatures drop below 20 degrees, in a container, you might want to bring it in. But, um, you know, in the ground, you don't have to worry about it. And in a container, just be sure you keep it watered and fertilized, and it will reward you with uh, lots of beautiful berries. Yeah, and I understand it can get up to 8 feet and 8 feet wide. Is that true? It's rare to see one that big. Yes, it's true. Wandering around my ranch, I'd say four to five feet is the average okay. size. But um, again, if it gets uh, if it gets a little too big, you certainly can cut it back. And you're not going to hurt the plant to cut it back uh, any time. But you're likely to sacrifice some of those beautiful berries. So I, I like to, if I have to do any pruning, I prune on them uh, in the spring while they're in bloom, and that way I can still save the limbs that are going to have the most berries. I've got a pure white form as well. One of these days, I'll get a bunch of it propagated, and we'll have another color for you to have. Yeah, I heard that, that that's kind of a rare one right now, the white one. It's, it's uh, let's call it uncommon. I don't know that I would call it rare, <laughs> but uh, my business partner and I both have ones that are five to six feet tall. Um, so I've not been real successful growing, trying it from seed, but uh, this year we're going to take a bunch of cuttings off of both of ours, and hopefully we'll have some white ones. We'll start making it a much more common plant. Okay. Well, thank you, Bob. That kind of answers all my questions. It's always good to talk to you, Zell. You have a great uh, weekend, and yeah. Kareem's going to punch line number two, and I'm going to say good morning, Ralph. Morning.
Morning, sir. Yes. Um, I've got a, uh, a grapevine that is not really producing. Okay. And I'm wondering what I might be able to do. Well, on grapevines, thinning them out very heavily. In fact, your commercial grape growers, your wine producers and people, they actually thin them out up to about 80% every year. And this sort of forces the grapevine to put all of its energy into, uh, you know, in, into making more grapes and making sure that the grapes that it makes are going to be fair size. So the really, and, and do you know what variety yours is, whether it's Champanel or Lenoir or Black Spanish? Um, I'm going to go more with Grandma Memorial. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I can't really tell you. There's more than one yeah. training or pruning system, but uh, just go through. Leave some of the vines, some of the canes intact. Remove a lot of the others completely because uh, we really, really do thin the grapes back heavily in order to get them to bloom and produce well. Um, if your leaves are good color, if your vines have good vigor, then everything else you're doing is fine. Okay. And then the the other reason I called, um, our soil is more like clay in my mind. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very dense, very compact, and I'm interested in trying to work it and getting it to to have a better feel to it. You walk sure. across it, and it's got some give. It doesn't feel like uh, concrete. Right. So what uh, what kind of things should I be looking at? Well, understand that for Mother Nature to turn that kind of soil into really good soil, it took her several thousand years. So you're going to have to be patient. You can make it happen a lot faster, but um, it's no matter what you do, it's not going to happen overnight. And we don't like right. tilling it up because that brings a lot of the organic material up to the surface, which wasted, which kind of works against what you're trying to do. So putting compost on the surface, which adds, you know, humic acids and things, um, putting molasses, dry molasses or liquid molasses, things, products like Medina's, uh, they, they sell what they call soil activator, and then they sell something called Medina Plus, which is soil activator with some extra seaweed added. Um, there are things out there like uh, dry humate, which you can put on the surface of the soil. But the whole idea is we're going to work from the top down to loosen that soil up, and we're going to do it mainly by adding good, strong microbial life, being sure that all the things in the soil have all the materials, energy, the nutrients they need. And uh, I tell you the story that uh, Stuart Frankie from Medina Agricultural told me a long time ago, and he, oh, he told me not to talk about it on the air, so I talk about it all the time. But they, of course, have sold millions of gallons of soil activator to uh, farmers and ranchers and big-time ag producers. And he said some of their old-time customers have cut way back on their orders because that soil that used to be like concrete is so nice that their tractor's bogged down in it now. So that's that's what I'll look forward to hearing, that Ralph's soil is so good that his lawnmower's bogging down in it. But uh, uh, And Medina Soil Activator, Medina Plus, are just one part of the equation to make it happen as quickly as possible. But you're going to have to be patient with it, but you will improve it, and every year you're soil is going to get better okay and the last last thing i got uh cornmeal and corn uh-huh. gluten yep. what's the difference 
Cornmeal is, whole ground cornmeal is just basically ground up corn. It is loaded with all kinds of good things. When they make, as I'm sure you've heard, high fructose corn syrup is in just practically every processed food out there. When they take the sugar, when they take that out of the corn, what is left behind is the protein part of the corn, which is corn gluten meal. So we use the, uh, the whole ground cornmeal as a fungus preventer. It does just a lot of different good things in the soil. Corn gluten meal is actually much higher in nitrogen. It can be used as a fertilizer, but it's very expensive to use for that purpose. In fact, I've burned some things with him trying to use it. And they talk about it as a pre-emergent, but I've not had a whole lot of use of, of good results trying to use it as a pre-emergent. So whole ground cornmeal is going to be the main thing that we use in the garden, and it's a whole lot cheaper than corn gluten meal. And then what would you use as a as a pre-emergent if it's not the corn gluten? Um, you know, when we have weather like this, lots of rain, nothing's going to work. Uh, the chemicals, the corn gluten, when we have constant moisture, none of them work because the way a pre-emergent works, it uh, keeps the, it lets the seed sprout. It doesn't do anything to the seeds, but it lets the seed sprout and then it keeps the seed from developing a root system so it dehydrates and dies. When we have lots and lots of lots of moist weather like this the seed can sit there for a long time waiting for its root system to grow and consequently your corn gluten meal has become pretty much a waste of time the other problem with corn gluten meal or really any pre-emergent is the main thing people seem to fight are sticker burrs those blasted things can sprout any time from march to october so you would end up putting whatever pre-emergent down three or four times and that becomes you know just economically unviable what i do for weeds my lawnmower is my number one weed controller i had a bunch of weeds uh coming up in uh in the sidewalk in a patio that's where i use that orange oil and vinegar i sprayed thursday uh by friday they were gray and starting to shrivel and today i can barely even see where they were so where we have weeds come up we can use the orange oil and vinegar, and of course, uh, early in the season, before your grass starts to green up, you can spray your whole yard with orange oil and vinegar, and it won't hurt your dormant grass, but it'll kill every one of those little green weeds starting to come up. And uh, quite frankly, uh, lawnmower's a pretty good weed controller, and what we're trying to do is keep the weeds that are already up from forming seed, and um, weeds become much less of a problem. I, I just have never found uh, pre-emergence worth the money or very effective when I did use them. Okay. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you for the call, Ralph. All right. We are back to gardening uh, and back to the phone lines. Uh, my current four people there are David and Rick and Robert and AJ. And uh, David's up next. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? I'm doing extremely well. I got a great engineer in the studio and my equipment's working here at the nursery. So uh, life is good. Good for you, Bob. Hey, we've got some property in Utopia and got several madrone trees on it. And right now they're in bloom, white blooms. Got a neighbor right. across the road with a little higher elevation. They've got hundreds of them up there. He's got more acreage, of course. But on that property, not only does he have some, uh, all that most are white, but he's got a few uh -huh. of them that are pink. Are those females? Uh -huh. No. Uh, no. They... The the uh, madrone is what we call monetius, which in Latin means one house. 
and uh, the blooms, you know, will have both male and female part to the blooms. So the trees are not separate sexes. His are just um, a very slightly different variety. Lots of plants like that will have some variation in flower color. Wow, that's wild because, uh, again, he's got them, the pink ones scattered throughout his property, and I've got none, never had that any. That's interesting. It's you know nature is fun. I you know walking around my ranch, I've got I've got one hill that has madrones, and then I have other hills that have none whatsoever. But uh, I've got mountain laurels all over the place. The abundance majority of them are anywhere from light lavender to dark lavender. But every now and then I might come across a pink one, and occasionally I come across a pure white one. So Mother Nature does things her way and doesn't really pay any attention to whether they're where we want them or not. Yeah, and another interesting fact, I found out several years ago on our first trip to Vancouver, British Columbia, those things are everywhere. It's a different variety, a little different. Right. It just struck me as real funny that they're so hard to grow here, and they seem to require an arid and and poor soil, and up there it's nothing but misting rain and good soil, and here's hundreds of them. Well, and you can look at the same thing. You'll see them all over uh, the coastal area of California, there's is a slightly different variety, and they sometimes call it manzanilla. But um, it it's interesting. And again, in that area, you'll get a bay laurel, but it's a totally different bay laurel than the one that grows so well for us around here. And plants are just adaptable. And I think that uh, what people have to remember is whatever your belief about creation is, it took millions of years, and uh, nature is very patient at working all this out and uh, the brief period of time that we have to sit here and enjoy it we don't see the changes that have taken place over time and it's it's just one thing that makes it so much fun when you study nature it's just uh i don't know it's it's a lifetime thing to be doing it's been a hobby of mine in fact we have a place on the hill we're 350 feet above the valley and last week people were getting three to five inches down in the valley and i got three uh-huh. sixteenths of an inch uh, yeah, I, I live in that same donut hole period, so uh, we'll we'll just be thankful for what we get. And uh, anything else I can help you with today? No, sir. Thank you much, and you have a great day. Appreciate the you help do. once again, Bob. Always, always a pleasure, David. Thank you. And Cream, uh, uh, let's go ahead and talk to Rick. Good morning, Rick. Hello, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing very well. I'm doing excellent, as a matter of fact. How about yourself? Okay, I'm doing all right. Uh, I have a about a two foot tall mountain laurel that okay. needs to be dug up and moved. How do I go about doing that? Very, very, very carefully. Is this in your yard? <laughs> where Where are you going to move it? My, it's in It's in my sister in law's yard in shirt. Okay. Well, and and that's a good thing because it's in pretty good soil, so the roots are concentrated near the base. You have to treat the root ball on a mountain laurel like a giant hen egg. You break it, and it's done. There's not much you can do about it. Uh, The good news is that two feet is not a big mountain laurel, but I will tell you that even the professional diggers that do this day in and day out, digging them up out of nature, they probably lose 25 to 30% of them. So what the way you're going to do this is you're going to kind of dig, and you don't have to go too far out from the trunk, maybe eight inches or so, and you're, in effect, going to dig a almost a trench around there. And then 
again, what the professionals do is they will tie up that root ball. Uh, they'll use a piece of burlap. They'll use a pillowcase. They'll use an old bed sheet. But they're going to wrap something very tightly around that root ball to hold it in place. And then they're going to undercut it with a shovel. When they move it, they're going to pick it up by the root ball only. Have the new uh, hole dug, set it gently down into that, and fill in around the sides. Uh, plant it, you know, at the same depth or even a little bit higher than it was initially, and uh, water it in with some Garrett juice or some Super Thrive or something like that. And um, I'm going to trust that you're going to be one of the ones that does it right. But just just keep in mind, everything you do, is, and you can pretend it's a hen egg, you can pretend it's nitroglycerin, but just keep in mind that you need to handle it extremely carefully. And uh, you you have a good chance of being successful, but only if you're very, very you know careful in how you handle the root ball. All right, okay. Look, can I... Do I need to put it in a bucket or something when I'm transferring how far, it? How far do you have to move it? Oh, probably 70 miles. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, you can put it in a bucket if you like. If it's going to be riding along in the back of a pickup, which is not a good idea, it would make it a lot right. easier and it'd be a lot cleaner. But uh, keep it keep it in the inside with you. Try not to leave it out in the wind. And um, again, just pretend like you got a load of nitroglycerin in the back, and you'll drive much more carefully. I wish I could convince some of the idiots on I-10 at five o'clock in the morning to drive the same way, but uh, um, <laughs> anyway, making light of a serious situation. But no, just 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 be super careful with that root ball, and uh, you'll have a reasonable chance of being successful. Okay, well, I have a, another question. I have a big mountain laurel in a cemetery that I manage. Uh-huh. And it has died. What okay. would have killed it? Most there there are two there are three things that kill mountain laurels. One is an excessive amount of water, um, which people <laughs> yeah people do that in their yards because then they plant impatiens underneath them, which they have to water all the time. Second mm-hmm. thing could be if it was buried too deeply. When it was initially planted, and that can take 10 years, but it will eventually kill a plant if you have that, uh, what we call the root flare buried, and it's important on a mountain laurel just like it would be on any other woody tree. The third thing that also takes years to happen, the old tree diggers, hopefully they're not doing it anymore, but uh, the old tree diggers, uh, in order to protect that root ball, they used to tie it up with that, what we call polypropylene twine, that rope-like stuff that never rots. And over uh-huh. time, it started, you know, they just they just tie a loop around it, of it around the top of the tree, and then they would be careless and not cut it away when they planted. I remember we dug up one out of my, parent, my uh, partner's mother's yard that did the same thing, just pulled it up and died about eight years after it got planted in there. And when we pulled it up, we looked at the root ball, and it still had that polypropylene twine unchanged but it had eaten into the trunk and into some of the roots where it actually girdled the plant so those are the three things that i see kill mountain laurels well this tree's been there over 30 years probably yep and it can be the same thing well could it been a bug of some sort i've never seen a bug kill a mountain laurel because last year it had some it looked awful it just the 
It looked like it had some kind of web on it or something. Well, and that's a little caterpillar that hits them when they are stressed. Uh, the caterpillar doesn't kill them, but the caterpillar tells you something else is stressing that tree badly. There are other rare things. I saw one die one time when somebody had a leak in a gas line, and uh, natural gas uh, can kill the root system. But um, I have yet to see any bug they just they don't get bores in nature they live 150 years but uh i i have a flood control lake on my property and one year you know it it water came way way up and stayed up for about three weeks and it killed every mountain laurel that was in the flood plain there a few of them a handful of them came back later but it it really just always has to do with either the root system or um you know or or a water issue I guess the other possibility is uh, if cemetery management has, uh, you know, switched over and started using weed and feed or products like that. No, they no, will no. Kill. I, I do, I do that part, and okay. we don't do that. No. Well, I, no, I didn't figure it would. Got, it's got some green little shoots on it. I don't know if it's going to come back or not, but it don't look well, good at all. It's having green shoots is a good sign, but um, you know, you. Uh, um, again, at some point, you might want to get down on your hands and knees and just pull the soil back away from the base and uh, expose that root flare. Sometimes soil fills in gradually around things over time. But the single most uh-huh. important thing with them is being sure that that lower part of the limbs and the trunks, being sure that that's exposed to have air around it. Okie dokie. All right. Thank you, Bob. Hey, it's a pleasure, Rick. You have a good uh a good Sunday, and we'll talk again. All right, we're back to gardening here on KTSA Radio, broadcasting <laughs> not from the studio today. Uh, uh, broadcasting from over here at Shades of Green. Uh, if you walk out on the deck, uh, you can look in the window and wave. Certainly welcome to do so. And uh, uh, it's sort of the new normal. And like I say, the the difference is that in rather in the being in sort of a soundproof room, you may hear a little noise in the background. You may hear me talking to my engineer back and forth a little bit. But basically, radio show goes on as usual and i certainly appreciate the calls and look forward to talking to you it's going to be robert and aj and lloyd and glenn and robert's up next good morning robert good morning bob how are you this fine morning i'm just uh enjoying a nice uh, spring sunday morning yep just waiting to do some, some more garden conversion from, from winter to spring gardening today just put on your uh, butters because you're gonna need them i'm wearing them now Good. Um, onions planted probably about three months ago. Uh-huh. They're starting to bolt, and they've never bulbed. Is it just a weather pattern we've had? I've never had. I mean, I've, I couldn't tell you how many years I've been planting onions. I've never had them not bulb out on me. Yeah, it 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 is largely weather related. Um, you can leave the ones that uh, are actually forming that little seed pod on in a little longer. They will continue to grow a little bit, but uh, any of them that the flowers are real well developed, pull them and use them as green onions because uh, once they start to flower, um, then they, you know, they, they just don't do a whole lot more growing and they don't store well. Correct. It also, I understand. yeah, it also seems to be a little bit varietal. 
And I've had years when one variety or another where every plant is bolted and uh, knock on wood, surprisingly, the only ones I planted this year were the 1015s, and I've not had a single one bolt yet. So it's okay. why I I always try to, try to plant two or three varieties at least because uh, just some years one one variety decides, hey, the weather conditions are perfect to make flowers, let's go for it. And um, so, I, you know, it, it, I, again, it's, it's not anything you have done or haven't done. It's the variety and the way it's interacted with day length and weather. Okay, yeah, we got some, I know some Cajun purple, and I didn't jot down the variety of the white, but I always took the one that on the label showed to have four to five months storage capacity. I think it's a Texas Best, or I don't remember the name of it, but I always get the yep. same one. But okay, we'll we'll try again. Hey, my neighbors, I have a neighbor across the street that has two, Mex- I assume they're Mexican fan palms, that have been in the ground for many, many years, are about 12 foot tall after the all the palm leaves have died and fallen down and my next door neighbor has fan palms that he put in when he built the house six years ago and they're starting to die on him as well is there some disease anything normal anything that's just hope yeah this you know we have oak wilt and we have other things that kill certain types of trees is there something specific to fan palms that may kill them in a neighborhood the only thing that i have seen uh there is a great big grub worm that is the grub of one of the big beetles that sometimes will get in and uh, it's it's not the grub that bothers the grass but it will get in and kind of hollow out you know the base of the palm and I have occasionally seen that you know kill a palm they of course are very susceptible to herbicide damage they are not susceptible to being buried too deeply they have an entirely different trunk structure interesting lecture sometime but i need a blackboard to show you but um there is so i'm familiar with yeah they (laughs) they uh, uh they can get a disease called lethal yellowing but i have not seen any of it in this area at some point, you know, if you dig it up, look and see if that base seems to be hollowed out. I have started recommending to people if there's any of that showing up around, um, you know, treat the, the area of the soil around the base of the palms with the same beneficial nematodes we use to kill grub worms in the grass. It seems to kill that big grub that does the damage to the uh, palms as well. Okay, and it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm just standing in his driveway right now. He's got six of the the fan palms across the front of his house spread out one of them's about 12 foot from the other one one of the six is that looks normal uh-huh. the other five are in varied degrees of dead leaves one of them has never leafed again it's completely gone i guess we'll pull that one up and look for the big grubs i mean we i mean like everybody we get them around here i get them in the garden when i'm planting every sure. spring sure but um okay we'll i'll suggest the nematodes do you think on a uh, I know you're not looking at them, but let's take a palm that, you know, a third of its leaves are are dead. Is the tree going to die? I mean, is that process it's too late to reverse, do you think, or any no, idea? No, I palms are very resilient, and there is always a chance of reversing. Remember that the only part of the palm tree, of this type of palm tree, that's really alive is right there up in the crown of the tree, up at the top of the trunk where the fronds are coming out. And if something happens to that spot, 
That's why you can't top a palm tree. Now, there are other palms that, you know, branch from the base, like the Mediterranean fan palm and uh, some of the others, the Sabals occasionally will do it. But um, your so-called Mexican fan palm uh, it, it they they don't. It's not necessarily a kiss of death. If they've lost a third of the lower leaves, um, then they they still have a good chance of recovering. Here's the one other possibility, and uh, there are two different species. Uh, uh, the genus is Washingtonia, but uh, there there are two different species of Mexican fan palms that look a lot alike. One of them's called Robusta, the other one's called Filifera, and they one variety is not nearly as cold hardy as the other uh and all of them you know temperatures down in the low teens will kill any mexican fan palm but i believe it's the filifera that is susceptible to you know and it can be severely damaged we've not had a really hard freeze but we have had you know that very early freeze when things were still in very active growth and it it put a lot of hurt on a lot of plants so I, I guess there is a possibility that it could be weather related and if you ever plant more of the Washingtonias be sure you specify you want the more cold hardy form but it's okay. possible that we could have had weather that damaged that one little bud up in the top the growing point and once that happens you know there's nothing you can do to recover the plant so that that's just one other outside possibility. Okay, yeah, the, um, I'm pretty sure the neighbor across the street, and like I say, hers have got, I mean, they're 12 foot, they were probably at one time 20 foot tall when the leaves are full grown and extended, but they've all died. Uh-huh. She hasn't taken them out of the ground. I, If I remember, these things died last fall. So I'll have to ask her. But yeah, we'll we'll do yeah. the, we'll, on the other neighbor, I'll, I'll recommend you do beneficial nematodes. We'll probably, these are in flower beds. Yeah. So yeah. he's got pretty decent soil. At least, you know, I think we can dig around at least the dead one. We may be able to find some grubs if they haven't already gone through their metamorphosis. So well, take, I appreciate take the a, info, and we'll pass it along. I always enjoy talking to you, Robert. You have a great Sunday, and thanks for the call. Thank Goodbye. you, sir. Have a great day. Certainly. Bye. You too. Bye. All right. We are back to gardening once again, and... Um, a nice Sunday morning out there. Hope you're going to spend uh, as much of it as you can outside. It's yeah, it's uh, uh, it's a little bit misty. We might get a little bit more rain, but hey, the cold part is over. It looks like we're into quite a warm up. So be prepared to shed the jackets and put back on the t-shirts. Come this next week. Uh, AJ Lloyd, Glenn, and Patrick. Uh, AJ's up first. Good morning. Hey, Mr. Bob. Uh- First off, huge thank you to you and Mr. Howard Garrett about having your radio shows. I really appreciate all the awesome information you guys put out. Well, we have a lot of fun, too, and get to talk to the nicest people in Texas, including you. So I've got eh, pretty much two. First one is I went to Tulsa for uh, to see some family, and all their dogwoods are blooming. Can uh-huh. you grow dogwoods in, I want to say that I'm in hardiness zone 8A. Can yeah. you actually grow them and get them to bloom, or is it too warm out here? Oh, no, it's not a matter of warmth at all. It's a matter of soil. Um, oh. What kind of soil are you what, what kind of soil are you sitting in? Uh, where, where are you located? On, um, I'm in um, uh, north of San Angelo, Texas, so, and I live okay. on just sandy clay, old cropland that I'm trying to fix anyways. 
Well, if you want to grow, and there are many kinds of dogwoods. In the hill country, we actually have a native dogwood called a roughleaf dogwood, and uh, it's not showy and pretty. The East Texas dogwood is, and the one that you've seen is what they call a flowering dogwood. It needs to grow in a shady spot, and it needs to grow in rich soil. If you will mix your planting area, pretty generous area, like half and half with good compost plus your native soil, uh, if you've got a good spot in the say, shade and the soil grows well, you can grow a flowering dogwood. It's, uh, um, it can certainly be done, but it's, it's not the cold hardiness issue. It's the soil issue. And um, so we're going to try to replicate that old kind of uh, uh, acidic, um, well-draining soil that they have from East Texas all the way through Alabama. And, uh, no, you can, grow, you can grow a dogwood. You just have to work a little harder at it and be sure it's in the shade. They will not take the kind of intense summer sun you have there and that we have, uh, you know, in the hill country. Awesome. Um, second real simple one is we bought 18 acres. It was just pasture land mesquite, really. Sure. And now that I've got it cleared off and I'm starting to get it taken care of, man, it grows ragweed great, let me tell you. <laughs> Yeah. What I'm wanting to do is plant a fair bit of grass, one, to help control the mud, and two, to give kids somewhere to play with that isn't a mud hole. Sure. Do you have any good suggestions for sunny grass? And then a good sunny planted for seed grass, you know, around the the old Mr. Bob Webster planted in Mother's Day. And then anything you like to do to my soil to get it ready for it. Um, really, the only thing I'd tell you to do over 18 acres is uh, just put down a good organic fertilizer, and there's some of them out there that are pretty expensive. They're less expensive, actually, than the synthetic fertilizers now, some of the poultry that are fertilizers, but uh, that's going to do on your 18 acres. I would call Douglas King Seed here in San Antonio. They have some specialty mixes of different native grasses. They have a hill country blend. They have a general blend. You might call and ask them what the best seed mix for you is going to be in your area. Now, um, uh, in your in your kids' play area, I, I would keep the size limited on that. And I would uh, I would just plant Floritam St. Augustine because it's never going to have chiggers, you know, like just about every other grass in the world. But just give a nice play, play area. But outside of that, um, again, I would go with Douglas King's, uh, one of their native seed mixes. And all I would really do to get ahead of it is to, uh, you know, shred the area. And, uh, and if it's in the budget or as much of it is in the budget, just put down a good organic uh, poultry litter fertilizer. Awesome. Yeah, that was my question. Oh, I'm only planting maybe an acre and a half at first. I don't want the whole thing okay. grass. Most of it's going to yeah. be trees and roads and goat pasture and, ragweed. and pasture and all that good stuff. Um, and I guess you answered my question as far as fertilizer goes. So I'm going to ask you. I'm fixing to plant 12 acres to some kind of pasture grass. And I'm going to ask you if you had a good organic fertilizer for it. But apparently, fine chicken litter. So that's what I'm going to start doing. Well, it's it's good. And the nice thing. Um, you know, you're not too terribly far away. Medina will actually put it up in one-ton hampers for you where you're not paying the price of putting it in 40-pound bags. Uh, there's another one that's being sold called Viatrek, and it is a it, it doesn't have all the additives that Medina does, but it's a little less expensive, and uh, a lot of feed stores around that are carrying it. They put it in 40-pound bags, but they'll also put it up in 1,000-pound and 2,000-pound totes so you can afford to put out a lot of it without spending a lot of money. Yeah, so I told my wife, I was like, well, once a year we'll take a ride down to San Antonio or something and 
different wiser and come home. I could well, you take a ride to Hondo if you're looking for Medina. And uh, you might ask your feed store. They might even be able to get the Viatrek uh, because it is sold commercially and it is available pretty much to all feed stores. And I give it a good shot. But I, I'm getting real close to news here, so AJ. So it's good to talk to you always. Let's get back to phone calls. Uh, Lloyd is up next. Uh, good morning, Lloyd. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, uh, I've got a question. Uh, I've always had good luck raising uh, green beans, black-eyed peas. But right. I really have a problem with lima beans. Is there a trick to lima beans? I'm out west of Kerrville. You know, Is there something I need to do different with them? I, you know, they just take sprout a little bit, but they really don't grow good, and they, they really don't produce. Are you trying to grow the bush limas or the pole limas? You know, there are some varieties that simply do better than others. I grow green beans, and I have to tell you, it's been a long time since I grew uh, lima beans. They should not need any special treatment, but there are some varieties that grow a heck of a lot better than others. Ford Hook is a big name up north. But I'm not sure it's the best lima for this area. Maybe we have another someone else uh, who has grown more limas and will call and give us the name of a different variety. I think your problem is with the variety, though, rather than with your culture or anything else. I would check Baker Creek Seed. In fact, I might even call Baker Creek and uh, ask them what they would recommend. Um, uh, our, our friends, uh, you know, we, we do have some folks uh that grow things commercially around here and uh and maybe james from guadalupe county will call i don't know if he grows lima beans but he 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 has roadside stand and grows a bit of everything so uh maybe james will call us and tell us if there's a good lima bean but i I think it's your variety not your culture okay well that was something i appreciate your help well, and I will look forward to letting you know uh, what we find will work best. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're fine. But I think Ford Hook. I've just never really heard of anybody growing Ford Hook limas here. We see it on the packages in the grocery stores, but uh, I think they're going to be better, better southern varieties. And I'll do my best to get you some names. Okay, I'll be listening. Thank you very much. All right, Lloyd. Thank you, sir. Next up is going to be Glenn. Uh, good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Uh, simple question: We uh, we build bonfires uh, or pit fires in one of my backyards, and we use a combination of wood, uh, everything from ash to oak, uh, a little pecan. Can you use those ashes in your garden? If you do it in limited quantities, and if you're not using any of the real petrochemical, you know, fire starters, I tell you what I use. I, I get these little bitty fire starter sticks, and that's when I'm, because I'm, I'm burning brush more than anything else. And, uh, long as you're not burning, you know, commercial charcoal or using those big old fire logs or things, those ashes are just fine. Now, here's the thing about wood ash. It is very, very alkaline. And you only want to use a very small amount of it because if you overdo it, then you're going to cause problems by uh, making your soil too alkaline. But just a light dusting. Um, I have iron stoves in my home and for a 
fact, a long time, that was the only heat I had. But I'll sometimes go down to the garden on a windy day. I just stand upwind and literally take my little shovel that I cleaned out the stoves with and just kind of throw the ash up in the air and let Mother Nature spread it around. So you should never have a distinct layer of it, but, uh, you know, spread a little bit more widely. It's a very good source of potassium and, of course, a lot of other minerals in there. The, the big The big objection is just the alkalinity, and you just avoid that by not using too much of it. How about in the yard? Same thing. It'll work just fine. Uh, I can't tell you it's going to produce, you know, profound, wonderful benefits, but it's sure not going to hurt anything, and it's certainly going to avoid ever having a a deficiency of a lot of different minerals. But just uh, put it on very, very lightly and uh, do it once a year or so, and uh, should be a good way to get rid of the ash and do your plants in favor at the same time. Fantastic. Uh, I've got a yard that's basically... Local weeds, uh, clover, <laughs> uh, you know, I had a yard at one time, then nature took over. If yep. I want to plant regular grass again, do I need to weed eat it down to dirt or do I need to put out black uh, plastic? Oh, no, don't use black plastic. Are you thinking of planting from seed or planting from chunks of existing sod? Existing sod. Well, your new grass is going to make need to make good contact with the soil underneath so weed eating it down is a good idea but if you're if your weeds are as tall as my weeds you're going to have to go back and rake it after you do that because um we've had weather such we haven't gotten a lot of water down into the aquifers but man the winter weeds have grown this year so you you basically the whole thing is the the dirt on the bottom of your grass squares needs to touch your dirt and that's why we recommend that you get one of these water fillable rollers and roll it uh, after you put your new grass in and then you'll start watering regularly but uh, um, other than that it's just you know planting as usual be sure you get really fresh grass it cannot remain stacked on the pallets um, and it's uh, sort of an instant yard so you know get your weed eating done get the debris raked up i like putting down a layer of organic fertilizer you can never do that with the synthetic fertilizers but i think you're just fine to get some good uh, medina some good nature's creation mustard whichever one and go ahead and put your fertilizer underneath put your new grass on top of it and that just really gets things off to a super start fantastic sir i always appreciate listening to you on the radio may you have a safe and blessed day i certainly appreciate that and hope you do the same and stay safe glenn i look forward to our next visit okay i think we've got time to take one more call before the next break and that would be patrick good morning patrick good morning how you doing i'm good sir I have pods of uh, access that come through my property from time to time, but they tend not to stay long, and they're so beautiful, I just like to keep them around on a more regular basis. (laughs) Okay. uh, I'm wondering what plants I might plant that would attract them so I could cultivate that beauty uh, across the landscape. How big is uh, the property we're talking about? We're looking at 20 acres. Okay. About Uh, three acres of it. Three acres of it is... Good bottomland dirt. Uh, plant plant uh, Sudan. Sudan. You know, just good old Sudan hay. Back in the days when I was growing and baling my own hay, <laughs> and Sudan was not always grew because the cattle loved it so much. But, man, I had a herd of uh, 
an enormous herd of axes. Because see, here's the difference in an axis and a whitetail. A whitetail is a browser. A whitetail eats primarily, you know, forbs, which are little weedy things, which is a new growth coming up on woody shrubs and trees and things like that. And a whitetail is unable to digest grass, so they pretty much leave leave grasses alone. Your axis is a grazer rather than a browser, and the axis, its primary thing is going to be grasses of one sort or another, and that's one of the reasons that axis steaks taste just like beef, whereas whitetail, you know, steaks or chili or whatever have a a different flavor. I I like both, but uh, you, you plant Sudan, you'll make your axis very, very happy and, uh, if you decide to harvest one every now and then, the best chicken fried steak I've ever eaten in my life was Axis deer. So uh, they're they're mighty tasty, but uh, um, there's nothing you better than you can plant than just a good quality hay. And Sudan has always been my choice. Oh, you can eat Axis. That's 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 a good that's a good thing to consider. I'll I'll think about that. Well, uh, and here's another thing. If you're a hunter, because axes are an imported species, they're not a native species. If you choose to hunt. Uh, you can shoot them 365 days a year. There is no open or close. There's no close season on axis. They are available for harvest uh, any time you think you've got too many and uh, you want to have some real good meat. Uh, axis is axis truly outstanding meat, and uh, there is no close season on them. Okay, just harvest the them safely. Question, the second question I have is, uh, what's the best bag mulch to put at the base of my? Uh, tomato plants, or do you have a different suggestion? Uh, you know, I will tell you in my in my garden, I I mulch with compost. Um, okay. Compost is a great mulch. If you want to buy something that says mulch, try to buy what they call a living mulch that uh, is just a good you know shredded native material with some compost added to it but anything says living mulch or any good compost will be an outstanding compost uh, to put your outstanding mulch to put around your tomatoes and compost won't be too hot for it no no if you get and, and like like anything else stick your hand in that compost if it feels like it's still generating heat yeah it's not finished it's not ready to put out but even that won't be a problem so long as you don't put it right up against the stems of your tomato plants as long as you put it out over the root zone even that compost will be fine but if you get truly finished compost which feels cold to the touch never going to have a problem with that okay i'll let you i'll let you know how the axis works out <laughs> I'll look forward to hearing from you, Patrick. All right, thanks. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. Back to the phone lines. And by the way, all the lines are taken now. It's Gibbony, uh, Anna, Tom, Mark, and David. And it is Anna's turn. Good morning, Anna. Hey, hi, Bob. How are you doing? Doing well. And I agree, it does look like spring. However, it's 36 degrees here. <laughs> well, tell everybody where here is so before they panic. Yeah, here is in Ohio. Oh, there south, you go. South uh, eastern part of Ohio, and it's right. Beautiful. Anyway, yes. Um, last fall we got some chickens, and I I put them on an organic program with scratch grains and feed, and to kind of supplement things, I was kind of interested in giving them some uh, sunflower seeds, but I. I can't find them in bulk other than, you know, for people at high prices like for at Sprouts or someplace like that. So I was wondering if you knew 
how heavily sprayed sunflower seeds might be that, you know, I might be able to get away with just buying the, the bird seed kind. I think you're probably going to have to go to the bird seed kind. And I would just, you know, you've got Wild Birds Unlimited up there. You may have other, you know, good stores, but just ask them and they can ask the uh, the uh, people growing them. Uh, sunflower is not a real heavily sprayed crop. And, um, you know, especially any spraying that gets done, stupid as it is, uh, it probably happened very early, a long time before those sunflowers, you know, started coming into bloom. So I don't think you would find that sunflowers have been real highly sprayed. Now, as far as good chicken feed, I don't know. We'll ask Dr. Kirby that when he comes in in a couple hours. But uh, I can't say I've ever known anybody feed their chicken sunflower seeds, but I don't know if there's anything wrong with it or not. Yeah, I've read a lot of comments online that they love them. Don't give them too many because they can get fat. But, you know, when you <laughs> buy those scratch grains, those seem to sure. be corn, barley, and wheat. Right, right, which are all going to have more residue on them. Uh, I, of course, would look for the black oil sunflower seeds because they are by far the most nutritious. But um, I, and and again, you know, not to not to group things too generally, but I would go with a, if you have a good bird store, a good store with people who really know something about birding, I'd be a little reluctant, uh, but the grocery stores aren't going to have big bags of them anyway. But uh, uh, I would I would look for like Wild Birds Unlimited or just a good local birding store, and they should be able to get you 50-pound bags without any problem. If you're still down here, I'd send you up to the Little Nature Store in Bernie when if they don't have them at Wild Birds Unlimited here in town, which they probably do. But uh, and I'm not going to trust necessarily the Pet Smarts or places like that. But uh, um, even you can feed storage. They almost certainly have access to and could order you a bag of it. But try, try for the black oil, sunflower seed, and uh, I, I don't think you're going to find real problems with contamination there. Good. That, that was my concern. Okay. Um, my next thing is that I have fallen in love with this chayote, coyote squash or vegetable, uh-huh. whatever it is. Have yeah. you ever grown that to know how how it's done? Um, it grows easily. I haven't grown it in the past two or three years. It does make much longer vines. It's kind of like the tatumi and some of the others. You know, we've gotten real spoiled because they've come up with zucchinis and patty pans and crooknecks that uh, are a relatively compact plant uh, where the others can spread out a good deal. But if you've got room in the garden, I don't know any reason you would grow them just like you do your other squash. They're very easy, at least uh, they have been in my experience, but like I say, it's been two or three years since I've grown them, so uh, um, not not quite as familiar with them as I am with a lot of other varieties. It just seemed a little odd because it, it says that you plant the whole, that's why I'm running it by you, you plant the whole squash or vegetable, I'm not sure which it is, and the roots come out of where it's folded under, you know, it looks like it's puckered at the, at the mm-hmm. at one side of it. And it almost looks like it would hang. Hmm. I I just got seed from it, uh, you know, back when I grew it, and I I don't know any reason you couldn't do it that way. That's certainly what Mother Nature does, and uh, that's how you know most of the grow gourds that tend to grow in some of my fields. That's that's how they get planted. It's not me harvesting the seed and spreading it. So. 
I, I, I would probably try it both ways. I, but I, I, I think you can plant the individual seed, and you might call somewhere like Baker Creek if you're looking for a good seed source. Yeah, I did. I did uh, look in their catalog, and I didn't see any in there. That's why I got got to researching because uh, over here it's two dollars and forty nine cents a pound. <laughs> well, sounds it might, like it might be a good market crop when you figure out exactly how to grow it. I'll ask a couple of other people when I get an opportunity and uh, see if I can learn any more for you. Okay. One one last thing I wanted to say is that yesterday when you were talking to Howard Garrett about that new certification for right, glyphosate right. residue tested products, I thought, awesome, because uh, I've been buying coconut oil and honey and other chia seeds and a variety of things from a company called Tropical Traditions, uh-huh. and they're a small business, and they've been glyphosate testing for several years now, so I'm glad there's that's, finally something coming out that's going to be more yeah. widely used. Well, it, and it is a third-party cert, party certification, just like the uh, uh, GMO project, uh, it has a little butterfly just like that one, and uh, it's just, to me, it's going to be one of the most meaningful things out there, and um, I'm glad to know that you've, you've got somebody up there that's, uh, you know, that has done it for a long time, because I, I sure hope it uh, catches on. I hope we start seeing an, a lot of products on the st- shores, nah, the shelves of our uh, health food stores and grocery stores, because that, that'll mean a lot. Yeah, me too, me too. Awesome. Okay, very good. Happy spring to you. Happy Ohio Spring to you, and let's see, I believe Tom is up next. Uh, Kareem, let's uh, uh, talk to Tom. Good morning, Tom. Hi, uh, Bob. Yes, sir. Uh, question. I, uh, I uh, don't have room for a garden, so I have uh, 10-gallon pots. Uh, they're okay. fabric They're fabric pots. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like those. I do, too, because it's pretty hard to overwater. You know, they lose <laughs> out water if I get carried away too much. There you go. Uh, anyway, I've got some uh, potting mix that I just bought, and it's got a lot of sphagnum and wood chips in it. Uh, I don't know what else, but, um, I mean, it's it's a nice light mixture. But I'm wondering if I could put some compo- mix some compost in with it. I, I think it would be much better if you did mix some compost in with it. And, um, uh, yeah, I think it would be a real good thing. You know, the the wood chips are not a big issue because, given time, they will break down. Uh, the sphagnum, my, I have two objections to sphagnum peat moss. One of them is it's just not truly a renewable resource. And the other one is that it is so antimicrobial. But if you sort of overwhelm it, um, you know, with good compost, you should be just fine. Okay. Now, uh, uh, what I was wondering is you've mentioned the use of molasses. Uh-huh. Uh, and what I would like to do if you think it's right is to mix molasses in my watering can it's a two gallon can oh sure and and i'm wondering how much would you dilute in a two gallon container how much uh, molasses would you put in there i i go it's somewhere between one and two tablespoons per gallon so two gallon i go two to four tablespoons of liquid in there and you'll be just fine okay and now um because i'm i've got pots i i try to use determinant tomatoes you know i think that's a very good idea yes sir 
wander. Um, how many, if since they're 10 gallon, how many determinant tomato plants would you recommend I, I plant in a pot? Um, if they are the really compact varieties like patios, um, you could put three of them in a pot that size. If you go with a semi-determinant, something like Celebrity, I probably would put two to a, to a container that size. Okay, so they should be able to handle two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. It's to, you don't have to worry about tomatoes really crowding themselves. I mean, you could you could overdo it. Uh, the main thing, if they get a little too close together, is, you know, it just makes it harder to see and pick the tomatoes, and wow. you are a little bit more disease susceptible where you don't have the good air circulation. But tomatoes are wind-pollinated. They don't require insects to pollinate them. So if you feel like they're just getting a little too crowded, you can just take your pruning shears and clip out a, you know, a few leaves here and there to get a little more light through them. But, uh, no, I think you can very definitely go with one more than one plant uh, as long as you're not growing the real, the really big varieties. Uh, I, I use cages just as a, you know, as a, uh, because we get some pretty gusty winds down here. <laughs> it, it, helps, it helps keep me erect. So. Absolutely. I do the same thing. Okay. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. And James is up first. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing just fine. How's everything in your world? Oh, just great, man. I'm going to make soil blocks and uh, plant some more seeds and just have a good time in the greenhouse this morning. Uh, you know, it's. <laughs> I said if we ever did have to stay at home, which I hope we don't have to do, I'd probably be caught up on my gardening for the first time in years. So uh, we gardeners, we know how to fill a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of vacant time and all those families out there hey i just can't think of anything better than being a mentor to your kids and getting them started gardening as i know you have done with so many young people well that's where it's all happening here at the garden so uh you know that's we're having fun uh, i gotta so update you... my rainfall report uh, i told you <laughs> two and a half inches yesterday well it's a, it's a, it's over three. Uh, oh man you're you're making so, some of us hill country people jealous, but you know I got uh, close to three quarters of an inch, so uh, it's it's you know it has been a good rain. Hey, did uh, I don't know if you heard us talking about you a few minutes ago? Do you have a lima bean variety that you like for this area? No, I have a okay. friend I go to church with that uh, that has a favorite, but I've never grown it. He calls it a Christmas uh, Christmas. Lima. Okay. Very good. I just, I had a caller earlier, and I haven't grown lima beans in a long time. I know there there might be a red ripper or something like that, uh, lima, but I, I just didn't have one to recommend. These folks were trying one of the northern varieties without a lot of success. So uh, if you think about it, ask your friends, see if you can get the, get the exact name so we can pass it along to people that want to grow limas. Sure, yeah, I can do that. Um, I forgot what I wanted to <clears throat> Oh, yeah. Um, I heard you and Howard talking yesterday, and I think that radish uh, he was referring to is called a rat tail. Yeah, and that's uh, he texted me that a little bit later, and he said, but he found out that all radishes, that, you know, the, the bud, the, the plant itself is edible, but the rat tail is exactly the one that he'd come to that conclusion. So good verification. Thank you. 
It's okay. That's that's all. I, well, and one more thing. We got a little feed store here in Marion, Texas, and he's got uh, he's usually got a pallet of fifty pound sacks of that uh, <clears throat> sunflower. Ah, very good. He was looking for. Well, that <laughs> she she is a lady that was actually worked with the clinics, the vet clinics out at Lackland for many years. Uh, unfortunately, she moved off to to Ohio, so I don't know if we'll get here down get down here to see your friend. But everybody else looking for uh, looking for bulk sunflower seeds. So glad to know you've got a, a good feed store, Mary, and providing them. That's a good thing. Oh yeah, <clears throat> those guys been in business forever, and they're real real good uh, real good folks. You know, it's just true of the ag world in general. We got a we got an awful lot of good, just good people in in the, in the agriculture business, and uh, you know, always like to know about the good ones. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Okay, well then, go out there and have some fun in the garden, man. You do the same, James, and uh, share a little bit of that rainfall when you when you get all you need, and I'll I'll sure look forward to our to our next visit. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to David Kareem. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Morning, sir. I'm well. How about you today? I'm doing pretty good, enjoying the, the fog here in Beeville. Well, um, I think uh, you're all show. I'm glad you all had the show. Um, well, we're we're going to continue doing it. Uh, so far as I know, and and I've just been told that we're going to be doing it. I'm kind of enjoying it because I'm sitting here looking out a window at running fountains and blooming plants and uh, birds and sort of all sorts of things. So yeah, this this be sitting at a radio station as far as I'm concerned. So uh, I I plan to be here for you. And uh, so far as I know, KTSA is hundred uh, percent supportive of our local programming. So we'll do our best to always be here for you. Um, my question is, uh, I got two red maple trees that I got from the Arbor Foundation a couple of days ago. They're about three feet tall, uh, size of a pencil. Uh-huh. And um, can I plant them in the same hole and let them grow right next to each other? Well, sadly, I don't think they're going to do very well for you. The Arbor Day Foundation, as well as intentioned as they are, they ship a lot of trees to parts of the country where those trees won't do well. Now, I would, you know, you could, it'd certainly be worth planting them to try them. I would spread them out, you know, at, at least three feet apart, but don't feel like it's your fault if they don't do well. The, there are a handful of maples that do well in this area. Very few of them are red. Some of the Japanese maples that are red, Oshobeni and, and some of those, uh, will do fairly well here, but unfortunately, if I received maple trees from the Arbor Day Foundation, I'd look for a friend up north to ship them up to, because they're, they're just not a real suitable tree for this area. Okay. That sounds good. Well, all right, I might just give it a shot and um, uh, see how it goes. Well, you can do that, David. The other thing you can do, if you like, is start them out in pots. Figure out uh, how well they're going to leaf out and do for us and uh, leave them in that pot for a year. And that way you haven't uh, dug a hole and taken up space in your yard if it's a tree that doesn't do well. And I think I think those little seedlings uh, that they send are always better anyway if you could put them in a pot and grow them for oh, a minimum of six months, a year is better before you set them out. I think all the trees have a chance of doing much better that way. No, that's a great idea. I think I'll do that. 
and most nurseries are happy to give you. We have a lot of customers bring back their used one and two and five gallon nursery cans and we just give them away to anybody that asks for them so uh if you don't if you don't already have some of your own stop by just about any good nursery and they'll probably share them with you at no charge okay well thank you very much and have a good day you do the same thanks for the call this morning All right, back to gardening, and uh, like I say, you may hear a little bit of background noise, but if you're just joining us, it's because uh, KTSA, well, we're no longer really doing shows from the studios. I'm broadcasting, and probably will be for the next several weeks from over here at Shades of Green, so <laughs> you may hear everything from a, from a puppy dog barking to a phone ringing and just sitting here looking out the looking out the window at a beautiful look at nature and enjoy talking gardening with you. Uh, next three callers are going to be Jim and Alvin and Mark, and Jim is up first. Good morning, Jim. morning, Bob. Thanks again for the interview. Um, oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. I got a... <laughs> My front yard, I was at your shop the other day, and I got me some nematodes. Good. What I was thinking of doing first was mowing my front yard, getting it down, and then putting them on. I don't um, – also, I've got – I got some – the fertilizer, too, that I get from you uh-huh. for the front yard. Right. Is that going to – is there any steps for that? Do I need to – no, not really. The The thing to remember is that the nematodes need to get down to the ground, uh, and the ground needs to be moist, which thankfully it is right now because the nematode moves in a film of water. But if you were to put your nematodes down before you mowed, you would just go back with your hose and just wash them down a little bit to get them off the blades of grass and down into the, gra- into the ground. If you mowed first, I'd still go back with the hose and just, you know, kind of wash it down to get them off the cut grass blades and down into the soil where they need to be. There's absolutely no interaction and no toxicity between the fertilizer and the nematode. So you can do that first, last, or in the middle. Good question. I got one another. I got the, uh, I don't know what you call it, brown patch or the bugs eating those uh-huh. round circles. Right. And I've had it for, when I've been here, five years. And I, so I can pull up, some of them will, I can pull it up, and some of that brown stuff will actually break off. I, I really don't. I gotta have to get somebody out here to to really. And what? I, the one is finally growing weeds in it, so I'm hoping that's. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to grow now or not. In the same well, when when you lift up uh, on the grass, does the runner stay attached to the ground, or do you get pieces of the runner coming up as well? Uh, mostly, it stays attached. Okay, so what you may be looking at is the brown patch or rhizoctonia. What I would do, if you get rhizoctonia one year, it's probably going to be back the next. So in that case, i go after it proactively. I'll go ahead and, you know, put the whole ground cornmeal out. Uh, brown patch starts showing up when we start getting cool nights, which is typically October. I probably would do a whole, whole ground cornmeal application in late September. I'd probably do it again in December. And if you get out in front of it, if you can pretty much stop it before it gets started, uh, you can totally eliminate it. But uh, it's it's unfortunately it's very common. I guess if there's any good news that with brown patch, it usually leaves at least a portion of your grass alive, and it will regrow. Now, if you've got a big area that you've got a lot of dead grass, uh, you may not have the patience to let the whole thing regrow, in which case you can go into an area where you have some good grass and just dig up some little four-inch square pieces, plant that into the area where you have a, a large 
area of dead grass, and it'll spread out. It's amazing how quickly St. Augustine grows, assuming it's getting adequate light and water and nutrients. So um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, the, I guess if there's any good news about grub worms is that you rarely have them two years in a row because those June bugs, uh, they, they're going to pick the thickest, nicest grass they can find to lay the eggs because they want their little babies to have lots of, lots of good grass to eat the roots off of. And it's not the big grubs you see. It's these little things we call first and second larval instars that do all the damage. So if you're seeing a problem in an area over and over, it's probably brown patch. If you'll try to get out in front of it next fall, I mean, I would definitely make an application because we're still into a period when we have some cool nights, but uh, whole ground cornmeal will take care of it as well or better than any other product that you go out and pay a lot of money for. Are you carrying the whole ground cornmeal also at your we do. We we have it in a little jug, and then we have it in 30-pound bags. If you're going to drive wow. any distance, call before you come over, because we had one guy came in and almost cleaned us out of the big bags. But normally we keep it in stock every day. Very good. Thanks again, Bob, for all your help. I appreciate it. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure, Jim. I appreciate the call and the good questions. I thank you, sir. And uh, I believe it's Alvin's turn. Good morning, Alvin. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Got a question on grapefruit tree. Okay. I've got one that's loaded with grapefruit. I picked uh, approximately 100 already. Wow. And and there's uh, close to, I guess, about 90 left that I haven't got yet. <laughs> okay. The only problem with them, they're so sour, you've got to use a, a tablespoon of sugar on them. Well, and that's 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 a grapefruit that I grew up with. Uh, uh, have they always been sour, or does it seem to you like they're a little more sour than usual? No, this is the first year. Okay, um, you might try increasing the uh, the amount of potassium around the tree, and you can do that with nothing more than wood ashes. Uh, potassium has a lot to do with the sweetness, and also be sure that that tree is getting thoroughly very deep watered uh, because we you know up until well throughout the summer and fall um, we were and this is when a lot of that fruit was developing we were unusually dry and in a dry situation uh, grapefruit always becomes much more sour so uh, those are about the only two things I would suggest and if this tree has been sweet before it certainly should go back to being sweet but uh a uh, little bit more potassium in the soil, and like I say, you don't have to go out and buy anything special. Just you know, get some get some good clean wood ashes and sprinkle around. If you want to buy something that has uh, you know lots of different minerals and things in it, there there are things like azomite. There are things like uh, um, green sand and just some of the other micronutrient mixes. But hey, in my in my garden, I just use a little bit of the potassium periodically, and that should sweeten them up, along with thorough deep watering throughout the summer. Yeah, this this summer especially, I just took a hose out there, and I'd run it around the whole tree. Well, and you, you almost have to let it run for 24 hours to get enough water down yeah. there because grapefruit's a pretty deep-rooted tree. And, uh, you know, I've heard the same thing. Uh, in the case of uh, oranges, a lot of them just have not, did not develop the amount of juice they normally did. In the case of grapefruit, yeah, they make a lot of juice, but it, <laughs> it'll pucker you up. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, yes, one, sir. One, uh, 
I, with the remainder on there, should I pull them off and, because it should be blooming here in another month, shouldn't it? Oh, yeah, and, and it won't make any difference whether you take the fruit off or leave it on. If you're if you're enjoying that fruit sour as it is, uh, just keep on picking and enjoying it. Uh used to have a, a friend down in the valley, and we'd go out and pick the old, and they were all old sour grapefruit off the golf course that uh, basically was just practically their backyard, and we would just juice them, and we would uh, put them in those old plastic ice ice cube trays yeah. and freeze them and then just pop those out. And we had <laughs> Ziploc bags full of good old sour grapefruit juice, and they sure do make a good drink, <laughs> yeah. whether it's, uh, you know, whether whether it's just grapefruit juice or, shall we say, an adult beverage. We always put them to good juice. I don't think it's possible to have too many grapefruit, even if they're sour. No. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. Have a good day. You too. Uh, Mark's up next. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Bob. Hey, good morning. How how are the Hummers? They've been pretty slow showing up around here. We haven't had very very many of them at all. Are you starting to see any numbers yet? Yeah, they've been picking up in the last few days quite a bit. We're we're probably up good. to about two hundred now. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, well, with the weather yesterday, they were all hanging around the house. Too. <laughs> I'll bet they were. I'll bet they were. And we have um, we have one male rufus, and it's funny we haven't seen a rufus in probably two years. Isn't that interesting? Over us, yeah. <clears throat> Actually, oh god, I'm updating my website, and I'll let you know when it's done. There's there's a really neat website I found that where people tracked rufus for years, uh-huh. and, it, yeah. and it shows the pattern of where they fly around the country. And, it, and uh-huh. it's really interesting. Like some of them fly from the northwest down to like Texas, and then they go back up to the north toward the east coast and come back again. Anyway, I'll, I'll link that on my website when I get it done, and it's it's pretty cool. So outstanding. Um, yeah, um, yeah, we have four inches of rain. <laughs> oh man, I uh, I think we were just too- under the wrong cloud, but uh, I'm happy for you. Yeah, I think we we had rivers everywhere yesterday. It, it rained about two inches in a little over an hour. So. So, so a lot more of our dirt washed down toward the coast. <laughs> and and anybody that doesn't know your voice and name uh, marks up in the Fredericksburg area. So so that's that's who got who got all our good hill country rain yesterday. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, <laughs> so so but boy, my tomatoes are outgrowing the grow lights. I gotta <laughs> get them out there. It's when it dries. Yeah. Well, so, hopefully, hopefully we're we're getting beyond the danger of any real hard freezes. But this is Texas, so you know. I, I would. I, I've got mine out there. Have insulated around the lower 18 inch of the cage. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good about things. We're not very far away from April and uh, and uh, typically warmer weather. Well, we've done in the past. You know, we're the experts on on cold protection. We we right. have our hoops up, and you know, until they get up to you know two three feet, we can cover them with hoops. Sure. With the row covers. The other good thing about that is. Uh, if there's a chance of hail, we put out a 30% shade cloth, <laughs> the big piece, and we just put that over the top of them, and you can leave it on there. So it's oh, yeah. a real easy. Way, it's a real easy way to protect them from hail. So, yes, yeah. sir. So lima beans. Um, we've probably tried eight varieties over the years. Uh huh. The uh, Fort Hook uh, do not do here. I think yeah. it's just too warm. I think so. Unfor- unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So. So the ones that um, that kind of did the best were probably the Henderson and Jackson Wonder. They're both a smaller okay. bean. Okay. The um, un- problem is, though, none of the others really give you the really sweet lima beans. 
Okay. You just think, well, um, if you pick them when they're babies, you can, but these are just small. These never get big. So uh-huh. you don't ever get that really sweet flavor that you get from a Ford hook. Okay. The best one that we, we've found, um, and I think I mentioned before, we grow the, the Worcester Indian Red pole bean. Wor- and Worcester, Worcester Indian, Indian Red. Red. Okay. And it, of course, they're all heirloom. They're all from the 1800s pretty much. Yeah, right. Um, that one you can get from certain exposure. But, okay. But the good thing about that, it'll grow, well, shoot, it'll grow 12 or 15 feet if, if it has something to grow on. <laughs> okay. And, and um, we have a wall on the west side of our garden that's that, that you know, those beans. And it, it okay. makes a great shade for the, you know, climbing next to it. The, the other thing, you can also... They get a little bigger, so you can also pick those a little younger where they are sweet. Uh huh. So, so that's one way. If you, it, it's it's like, unfortunately, that if they don't get sweet, they kind of have an unusual flavor, but they're not nearly good. So, 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 okay. so that pole bean is actually a good one if you want to try to pick some sweet ones. You can pick them when they're small. And that's the Worcestershire Indian Red, and you're getting it from the Southern Seed Exchange or Southern Exposure Seed right. Exchange. They've okay. got yeah, they've got like fifteen varieties, and we've tried most of them. <laughs> yeah. the, well, you're helping a also, lot of people out. I appreciate that. We also tried the Christmas at least one year, and it, uh-huh. it didn't do too well. I don't, I don't remember what. I, I think part of it is the big ones. The big ones is just something with too hot or dry for the big ones to really yep. do well. So yep. yeah, so that's our. That's what we've learned. We we just depend on that one now, and since we we don't grow the bushes anymore, so we can just save the seed every year, and you know we get plenty of seed. So yeah, that's that is the way to do it. Well, you're most kind to take a little time this morning and share with us. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so good luck with uh, the gardening, and <laughs> <laughs> so you're not going to be out in the garden for a few days, right? Till it dries out, some I guess. Oh no, I'll be out there in the mud. Believe me, I'm I'm picking so many. Uh, uh, edible pod peas, uh, so-called sugar snaps, man. I've got oh. to get out and pick them every day, and uh, uh, you know, just so that I can keep them down to a reasonable size. But no, uh, if if we gardeners let a little mud stop us, we we wouldn't be gardening for very long. Yeah, yeah. What I try to do is I have some long cedar planks I'll lay down where I where I really need to, and you know, to not make mud. <laughs> but yep. yeah. Well, that okay. and just, uh, you know, we have our own chipper, so we're always making uh, cedar mulch, and um, I, that that makes a pretty good walkway. I have actually relocated a bunch of beds up a little closer to my house where I can fight the squirrels a little bit better, and I actually put down some flagstone there. So I guess I'm getting a real uptown garden. It's just not quite as big, but it, it, it it's uh, it's a little bit more mud avoidance, but, you know, it's... I just, I'm sure you agree. Gardening is just one of the best things people can do uh, when we've got so much other stuff going on. And I just always appreciate your sharing with us and, and what you guys are doing. Sure, yeah. And though, just to summarize, the, probably the best bush one was would, 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 would the Jackson Wonder. That's yeah. You, now, you, you mentioned yeah. Henderson and Jackson Wonder as right, being the bush right, forms and the Worcestershire uh, Indian Red as being the pole. Okay. Right, right, great. Okay, okay. You take care, Bob. <laughs> Thank you again, Mark. Appreciate it so right. much. Sure. Goodbye. All right. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> Let me be sure I've got I've got things. Uh, Frank, I believe, will be up next. And then it's going to be Catherine and Pat. Uh, let's bring up Frank. Good morning, Frank. How you doing, Bob? Hey, I'm well, sir. How about yourself? 
Oh, doing pretty good. Can you hear me? Good. Uh, I hear you perfectly. Good? Yeah, you're loud and clear. Uh, I don't have anything to add about any lima beans because my grandpa was kind of like, I think, your uncle that time that didn't plant broccoli. He <laughs> didn't like there. it? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I called about a lady we were working for on Friday. She uh, had about eight uh, orchids in uh-huh. uh, separate pots. Okay. And she had, she's had great success with them because she showed me pictures of all of her uh, flowers over the last several years. And yes, sir. I have no knowledge of orchids. And I promised her I would call you and tell you what she was dealing with. She's got uh, the leaves of them on the very end are turning yellow. And she's got no flowers whatsoever. And she's repotted them in October. And okay. she, she's bought some type of orchid fertilizer, and it was directly for orchids. So uh-huh. I'm not sure if uh, she had them in a breezeway because it was raining on Friday morning, and mm-hmm. she was wanting them to get natural rainfall. And uh I didn't know what to tell her because I don't have any knowledge of uh, phalaenopsis or any of that stuff. That's your that's your uh, department. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. Are these phalaenopsis that she's growing? Because there are only yeah, twenty five thousand yeah. different species of orchids, so that's a huge family of plants. But uh, I sure hope she brought them in before the day was over because phalaenopsis. Um, really do not like temperatures below about 60 degrees. Um, I have never found that you need to use any special fertilizer. In fact, I've been, I alternate between has to grow plant and has to grow new fish fertilizer. And quite frankly, I've had better luck with has to grow plant over the years than I have with any of the special orchid mixes. Now, do you know what, what medium she repotted them into? She had it in some type of fur bark mixture. Okay. Yep. She well, had I... a little bit of post in there. She showed me. She had a newspaper uh, out there in her garage where she had done it, and she had uh, a little area out there. And the lady has knowledge of what's going on because sure. she was telling me uh, how she brings them into the center of her house where it's uh-huh. the warmest area. And uh, in the morning, she moves them to get a little bit of sun and all this stuff, and we haven't had sun over here in uh, probably a week or so. Sure, We had sure. uh, three and nine-tenths inches of rain since Thursday over here yep. in yep. Uh, Washington County. I'm not trying to brag, but uh, I'm not on <laughs> But, well, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about Phalaenopsis is you've got to be repotting regularly, which is about every two to three years, and these things like you, I don't know where she gets all her plants, but I'll admit, even I occasionally buy a plant from the grocery store that I just can't resist, but most of the phalaenopsis that are out there uh, are grown in this long-fibered sphagnum moss. Most of them come out of China, and I've gotten to where I don't even let them go out of bloom. I take them out and replace that sphagnum moss with the bark mix before before they've even finished blooming, and that probably shortens the bloom life a bit. But if you let the plants go down too far, which means letting too many of the roots get in bad shape, it'll take a while for them to bounce back. And when I start seeing yellowing on the 
tips of the leaves when I see blooming not doing well. I always think, you know, it, it's something to do with the roots. My suspicion is she left them in the old potting mix too long and consequently lost a bunch of roots. And quite frankly, it's just going to take them a little while to come back. Now, if she wants to use her special orchid food, she can, but I've just, uh, I've always been very, very pleased with the Hastergrow plant. I think she would be better off to find a bright place in her home and basically put them there and leave them there. I just don't think it's uh, that important to be constantly moving them back and forth. They need good, bright light if they're going to grow well and bloom well. And inside, that means pretty much in a sunny window, but um, uh, without Seeing them, I'm going to tell you, I think the the main thing that happened is she waited too long to repot them. She lost a lot of roots. Uh, they should get back to growing well. They should get back to blooming well. I would recommend that she, if, if she does indeed, if she has lost a lot of roots on them, then she may want to do a little bit of foliar feeding. She may want to in effect, miss the plants with a little bit of fertilizer solution periodically. Be sure she's, you know, watering properly. And I would use, you know, I'd use a good liquid fertilizer at least every two weeks on them. And I think it'll take them a little time to come back. But it does not sound like virus. It does not sound like any kind of disease to me. It, uh, Frank, it sounds to me like she just let them go down a little bit far. She's got a lousy root system on them. She's going to have to give those roots time to regrow. Right, that sounds, and I'll tell her that, and, uh, you know, I was concerned because she had them right underneath the roof line in this breezeway. Uh-huh. When we got up there, I said, I think those are uh, orchids, aren't they? And she just whipped out her phone and started showing me these photos, and she was like, <laughs> what's going on with them? I said, I have no, I have never grown well, any orchids my entire yeah. life. Tell her and, to collect uh, the rainwater, not to leave them out in it, especially on a cold, windy day like yesterday. But I, you know, I, it, yeah, it doesn't, well, you've, you've told her a lot of good stuff, but, um, uh, her, her main thing now is she's just going to have a little patience because orchids don't grow quickly. I suspect that again, she's had some root damage. It's going to take them a little while to regrow. And uh, she, you know, missed them with a little bit of fertilizer solution, a little bit of uh, Super Thrive, a little bit of garret juice periodically. Oh, Be patient. She wrote all that down. She put all that down on a notepad. So I've been listening to you pretty well then if I told her all these things. And uh, <laughs> when I t- asked her if she knew who Bob Webster was, she thought I was talking about a dictionary. And well. I was like, well, yeah, he's pretty much a dictionary. <laughs> you could call him that. Yeah, you're way too kind. I just happen to know a lot about orchids. I started in the eighth grade. I am judge emeritus for the American Orchid Society. Not as not as active. I'm not. Gosh, I just don't have time to be active in national organizations anymore. But I I still enjoy growing them. So you don't hesitate to call me anytime I can help. And uh, if she gets into any of the other types of orchids, I'll happily tell you about them as well. We won't hesitate at all. We love your program, and uh, hopefully there's Many decades yet to come. I've listened to you since 93, I think. So, uh, well, it's been my pleasure to be here for you. And uh, uh, you just, uh, 
you've survived two marriages and 14 girlfriends that I've had. So <laughs> you're the best relationship I've had in my life, I think. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, somebody sent me, and I believe in humor. I just think humor cures a lot of ills, but it's a little sign. This guy says, uh, uh, how long is this social, social distancing supposed to last? My wife keeps trying to get back into the house. So uh, a man who's been through that many women can get a good laugh out of that. And uh, all, all my lady friends out there, no, I'm just teasing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, have a great uh, have a great Sunday, and uh, let me know anytime we can help. It's good to talk to you. You too, man. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Goodbye. All right, we're back for a bit more gardening. Catherine, Pat, and Mac are my next three callers, and uh, she's in straight back to the phone lines, and Catherine's up next. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I was getting ready to, uh, not me, but someone that's helping me, put my plumeria. I've got about 12 that are as tall as my garage. <laughs> and so uh, I told him that uh, that we should cut them down a little bit. And I was wondering what would be the best way to cut them. I mean, would you cut them a foot or two feet? Or I'd, I'd, and I'd, then we take them outside and plant them sure. in the dirt. We don't well, yeah, I'd be, I'd be a little reluctant to plant them quite yet. Now, you might get away with it, but... Uh, uh, we're still in March, and we've actually had some pretty cold weather in April, so wouldn't be in too much of a rush to put them in the ground. I think it's fine to move the pots out, but uh, until that soil warms up, they're not going to be especially happy. But to your question about cutting them back, um, it's just fine to cut them back. I would tend probably to cut them back a little bit more just so I don't have to cut them every year because every time you cut them, you're going to be setting back the flower a little bit so i i tend to prune a little bit more heavily and then try to lay off the pruning shears for a couple of years but that's that's up to you the cuttings that you take if you want to start more plants just let them dry thoroughly they'll i cut them in sections about a foot long and uh you let that give them two or three days for that that cut part to we call callus which basically just means dry out and then if you want to start some more plants root them in perlite keep them warm and you'll have uh by christmas time you'll have your christmas presents all all rooted and ready to give away uh because plumeria does does root very very easily but I'm not going to try to tell you how to grow it because if you've got them as big as a garage, you already know how to grow them really well. But uh, just just don't overdo it on the pruning because if you do, you won't have many flowers this summer. Okay, and and I don't put mine in pots. I I just put them right in the ground. Oh, okay, okay. Because they're so, so heavy. Yeah, and yeah. they tip tip over the pot when they're in pots. So uh, sure. We're just putting them in the ground, and and would you put compost and put some fertilizer in the hole? Or I didn't bloom very well at all last year. Well, and you know, keep them in a really sunny spot because usually, if plumeria isn't blooming well, it's just not getting as much sun. But uh, I I would put some fertilizer, some dry organic fertilizer in the hole 
when you plant. I tend to put more of the compost on the surface because, uh, you know, I want those roots to spread. But considering that you dig them up and bring them in every winter, you know, I might even, I might even put some compost in the hole in this case. Uh, mix your compost maybe half and half with the soil you take out of the soil. Mix a little, uh, you take out of the earth, mix a little bit of fertilizer in with it and just use that to replant them. And I, I wouldn't give that advice for something that's going to stay in the ground permanently. But since you're digging up, and replanting these things every year. In that case, I think it's fine to, you know, to really, really enrich the soil right around them. All right. Well, thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. I've got someone doing it, so I have to do it today now. Well. Because he's he's already cut them down, and I just wanted to check before he put them in the ground. Well. But anyway, I'll just hope for the best about the weather. You just supervise them, and remember, if we do get a really late freeze forecast, your choices will be either to cover them, or I've seen times you might actually have to bring them up, bring them in, and then replant them, but we'll keep our fingers crossed that we're past the danger of any weather that cold. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're sure welcome. Thank you, Catherine. (laughs) Goodbye. All right. uh, Pat is up next. Then it's going to be Mac and Ralph. Uh, let's uh, go on. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, last spring, we put down uh, about a 15-foot by 30-foot section of uh, St. Augustine sod. Okay. And it was it was doing fantastic up until about August. Uh-huh. Then it started, started dying off on, on one section and, and moving towards the middle. And by the time we figured out we had chintz bugs, they managed to, to kill every bit of our St. Augustine. Oh, goodness. So uh, we're going to give it another try this year, but we'd like to know what should we do in, in preemptive measures to, to take out these chintz bugs uh, before we uh, put the sod, sod down? Uh, or what, what should we do? Beneficial nematodes. Beneficial nematodes will totally control chinch bugs. Now, grub worms are much more common here than chinch bugs, and they are also very devastating. But your live beneficial nematodes will take care of both uh, of both chinch bugs and grub worms pretty much 100%. When should we put them out? When you put out your new grass. At the same time? Yes, sir. I would do it, and I'd follow it up uh, about 45 days later with another application, and that hopefully will carry all the way through the summer months. In our our front yard, we have some St. Augustine, and it seemed to not be hit by the chintz bugs. What should we uh, do with that St. Augustine to prevent the chintz bugs? Same thing. Well, I'm honestly I'm seeing a lot of grub worms or a lot of uh, June bugs already. And uh, so we're pretty much telling anybody uh, to go ahead and put your beneficial nematodes out any time. There are no negatives to beneficial nematodes, and they have the side effect that they also will take care of fleas. They'll take care of fire ants. They'll take care of a lot of different problems. Not expensive to do. It's, you know, it's a little bit of effort to put that little blue sponge in the water and then go into your sprayer with it. But uh, um, for just about every insect that is likely to bother your grass, uh, live beneficial nematodes are the best way to go. That sounds good. Really appreciate it, Bob. My pleasure, Pat. Thank you for the call. All right. 
back to gardening and uh oh golly it's just it's so much fun i'm so glad that we get to keep on broadcasting and as uh, you've heard me say uh, we are not broadcasting from the radio station these days we're just trying to uh, keep that place totally 100% safe. So I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually broadcasting from Shades of Green sitting back here in the office. That's why you hear a phone ringing right now. That's why you might have heard a dog barking a few minutes ago. But the important thing is I'm here to help you every way that we possibly can. And, uh, I believe that, uh, Mac is the next person up. So, um, let's just bring, bring up that phone line. Good morning, Mac. Good morning, and let me thank. start off by giving you a heartfelt thank you for your show. It's a breath of fresh air for what's going on now. <laughs> well, you're very kind, and uh, I just think, you know, if you want to you improve your mental outlook, get out of nature, whether it means gardening or hiking or whatever, and that's probably the safest place you can be. So I'm glad to be here encouraging people to do that. Keep digging in the dirt. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> uh, I have four questions, and I'll run through them real quick. Okay. Uh, the first one, I never have used has to grow. Uh-huh. I've got some, though, and I wondered about uh, what is the uh, any rule of thumb for applying it with a hand sprinkler. You know, you're going to mix approximately somewhere between one and two tablespoons per gallon. If you're applying it every three or four weeks, I would go ahead and mix it at two tablespoons, which would be one ounce to the gallon. Some folks prefer to mix it like a tablespoon per gallon and then use it every time you water. I have never seen any difference. You do whatever is most convenient for you. But uh, uh, if you get it in the quart, it actually has that convenient little built-in measuring thing on top of it. But as long as you stay in that range of one to two tablespoons per gallon, you're never going to go wrong. And I don't know of a single plant you can't use it on. Now, it is important. There are two forms of has to grow. One of them they call has to grow lawn, and that's for use on grass only. And then there's has to grow plant we use on everything else. Uh, and every two to three weeks? Yes, sir, in most cases. Uh, keep in mind, too, that a plant uses more fertilizer the more sunlight it gets. So your things that are out in full bright sunlight, they're going to be need to be watered or need to be fertilized a little bit more often than something in a shady area. And, of course, that means in the summer months when the days are longer, and the light's a little bit more intense. We fertilize a little bit more often in the summer than we do in the winter months. And, uh, you know, your plants are going to do fine if you don't do it quite that often. But if you want the absolute maximum growth, the absolute maximum production from tomatoes and squash and whatever you're putting it on, yeah, once every two to three weeks is about what I aim for. And that's right. That is right directly on the plant, correct? Well, onto the root system, I'm much more in favor of uh, kind of drenching. I'm not into foliar feeding. It certainly doesn't hurt anything if you get the fertilizer on the leaves. But uh, I, my experience is that plants that are foliar fed only don't develop as good a root system as plants that are, you know, fed through the soil. So uh, I, I do more of a drench than I do a foliar spray, but uh, I'm like you. I'm pouring it out from a bucket, so I'm probably uh, <laughs> I'm probably getting those uh, those leaves pretty much coated with it at the same time. Okay, but and pretty much by the base, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The base okay. uh, up to up to a foot or two out from the base of the plant. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, another question. 
Uh, I got a H-E-B. I got a thing called a hibiscus braid. Okay. And it uh, had uh, very nice, very pretty blooms on it. Uh-huh. And uh, I wondered if you had any pointers for that. Well, uh, ideally, they need at least half a day of sun. Full sun will not bother the plants, but sometimes it shortens the life of the flowers. And typically, flowers are only going to last one day anyway. But um, uh, just give it good bright light. Do not ever let it get bone dry. If a hibiscus dries out completely one time, it'll drop yellow leaves for six weeks, and it'll drop a lot of buds, too. So water super thoroughly when you water. When the soil is dry on the surface, water it super thoroughly again, and you should have no problems. Do you recommend a big pot for that? Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, the uh, thing, you never want to put a plant that's too small in a giant pot, but if you have it in a pot that's too small, it's hard to water. So uh, I most of the hibiscus, I'm going to recommend growing them in a pot that's maybe 12 to 15 inches in diameter. And... Um, that that seems to be a good average size. They don't mind being root bound, but if you have them in a smaller pot, you're just going to have to water them a whole lot more often. I don't think that I would ever put it in a great big pot because then it's hard to maintain really even moisture. Um, so yeah, it's somewhere in that for me, ideal hibiscus pot would be 12 to 15 inches in diameter. Okay, next question. I uh, talked to you before about a. Uh some Mexican buckeye seed I got. Right. And uh, I never have had any experience whatsoever with Mexican mm-hmm. buckeye. And you okay. said that it was a very good plant. And uh-huh. I wondered, we talked about uh, uh, putting it out and everything. But what I was got to wonder about was the spacing. And I also wondered about uh, what made it, what attributes uh, made it a good plant. Well, uh, it grows wild on my ranch in the hill country, which means it <laughs> it doesn't have to be watered once it gets established. It doesn't mind fairly lousy soil. The deer don't eat it, and uh, it has a pretty pink flower in the spring. It is a deciduous plant. It has beautiful yellow foliage color in the fall. It has as pretty fall foliage as anything you're going to find in South Texas. It has pretty pink blooms in the spring, and... Uh, uh, doesn't require any help from me to do very well. So all those things are what I would consider, you know, just just good positives toward it. I don't know of a single issue it has with insects or diseases. Uh, you know, obviously it'd be nice if it bloomed year-round, which it doesn't. It blooms this time of year, and then it's just a green shrub through the uh, uh, through the summer months. But I guess just saying that it is just trouble-free would be the best thing that I would say. It just makes it a good plant, good native plant. And that's a pink flower, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Lots and lots of pink flowers. Let me ask you this. Uh, How about the spacing on that and more of a uh, non-pasture? Well, it's going to make a plant that's going to be six to eight feet tall and about five or six feet wide. So if you want to plant a big clump of them, you can plant them three or four feet apart. Uh, because they grow like a big shrub, they really don't make a tree. They just make, you know, a big, oh, kind of a shrubby growth. Uh, and if you want to plant them, you know, say three feet apart, that's enough. If you want to see individual plants, I'd spread them out probably six feet apart. Okay. Uh, 
And next question. On uh, people have asked you before, and I, in fact, I've done it on reading Esperanza. Right. And uh, I wondered, uh, is this time of year okay to read them when they're put, putting out? Well, here's the thing. Real soft, succulent growth does not root well. It needs to be uh, semi-mature. It needs to be, as we like to say, hardened off a bit. So I'm going to, if you're rooting last year's wood, if you're taking wood that really hadn't sprouted and started putting on new growth, yeah, you can root it right now. If it started sprouting and putting on its new spring growth, I'm going to give that wood at least a month or six weeks to harden off before I root it, and then I'll have much higher rate of success. I still recommend rooting in perlite, um, you know, if you want to soak it in a little bit of garret juice or liquid seaweed for, you know, 15 minutes or so, soak your cuttings in there. They'll root that much faster. But uh, it's it's a woody plant. It's going to take about six weeks to root for you, but it's generally very successful so long as you're using that mature wood. That real soft, succulent wood, when it first comes out, that's not going to do well at all. Well, does rock would rock phosphate help that getting rooted? No, not at all. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this. Something I've always been a little puzzled at on Esperanzas. Uh-huh. I've always heard that when they when you uh, are supposed to prune them is when they're first putting out. That's the ideal and, uh, time. You can you can prune them any time, but if you want maximum flowers, that's the best time to do it. Well, let me ask you this. I've heard that you prune them back to to the area of when they've been uh, when they've been killed back from the freezes, mm-hmm. right? And I have esperanzas that are coming out. Some from the base. Some have come out from the limbs further out. Some have dead limbs. And I was wondering if I cut them all back, say a foot above the ground, would that uh-huh. be better for good even growth all around? If you're looking for even growth, that would be fine. That's not going to hurt anything. If you want to have bigger plants, then you might want to prune the ones that have leaves higher up. You might want to leave them taller. But if you want more cop- compact plants and want more uniform growth, yeah, you can uh, you can go ahead and cut them all back to a uniform height. But I would do it in the very near future. Don't let them put too much energy into making new spring growth and then go cut all that growth off. Uh, this sounds like it would be a good project for you this afternoon. It does. <laughs> and we'll let, uh, the Esperanzas, rooting them, if you don't have any perlite, would they uh, do okay in just uh, native soil? No, no. There are too many bacteria and fungi that would cause them to uh, rot in trying to root them in soil. If you don't have perlite, get some good clean sand, mason sand or builder's horse sand. That's the other option for rooting them. How about uh, any uh, potting soil? They wouldn't go in potting soil? You've got too many bacteria and fungi in there. The majority of them will, root, will rot rather than root. What you want is a sterile medium to root them in. Well, I sure do appreciate it. This, your show is always just like a uh, an education every time I listen to it, <laughs> and I really do appreciate it. I take notes and keep them together, and uh, it's an adventure, and I wish you well. Well, I appreciate the call this morning, and uh, wish you a great Sunday, and we'll all get through these these trying times together, and we'll talk again. All right.
right, back to gardening with just a couple of minutes left. We'll get as far as we can with Ralph and Cynthia and Ronnie. Good morning, Ralph. Morning, Ralph. I've got an infestation of pill bugs, and I was wondering what would be a good attractant to try to draw them into a trap. Uh, best uh, thing that you can use is probably a slice of apple or maybe a little bit of lettuce. Uh, those are probably the two best attractants where you've made a trap for them. If you're just looking for a bait to put out, the Sluggo Plus is what we use. But uh, I think apple is one of my favorites. Lettuce just breaks down too quickly. Okay. And uh, could a person use a plastic container in the ground to try to trap them, or would they climb out? Uh, you're going to have to try that and see. If it's a slick okay. enough container, they will, you know, if it's a hard plastic, it'll probably be slick enough that they can't climb out. Soft plastic, they could probably climb, but uh, slick plastic or glass, those are going to be best. Okay. And one other quick question on fig cuttings. If you're rooting them in perlite, do you add any plant food with the water or just water? Not until they're rooted. It'll take four to six weeks for them to root. And at that point, if they're going to need to stay in perlite a little longer, because I'll be honest, I don't always get around to rooting them or to potting them up as quickly as you should. Uh, if they're going to stay in the perlite, think stay in the perlite indefinitely if you add a little bit of plant food to it. But until they have roots to take it up, you're wasting your time. Okay. That answers my questions. Uh, I appreciate, appreciate your program. You're certainly welcome, and it's Cynthia's turn now. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. Um, Good morning. I need to know what the best okra is to plant for for pickling. Um, I like Clemson Spineless or Green Velvet. Uh, though, or Velvet Green Pot, I can't ever remember. It's either Velvet Green Pot or Green Velvet. Both of those are relatively short Um you know, pick them when they are when they're young, but both of those make excellent pickles, and I okay. love pickled okra. <laughs> I, I like think it it'd too. be do very well, and and they're real good growers for this area. So I, I'd be happy with either or both of those. Okay, um, I got two. Well, I got a bunch of weeds, but two really bad ones. I've got vetch, and this other one that has like little white flowers that turn into wicked little sticker burrs when they dry. Sure, and I don't know how um, to get rid of those. Well, I use a push-pull hoe in the garden. If it's somewhere that you can spray without getting it on other things, the vinegar and orange oil work real well. Now, realize vetch is improving your soil, so I'm not anxious to get rid of the vetch. Vetch is one of the best cover crops a person could have, but the little ones that make the burrs, uh, a vinegar and orange oil will work real well, or like I say, I use a push-pull hoe almost daily in my garden. Okay, and then my last question, I have a large planter box that the soil is not absorbing the water just kind of runs off and i Uh try to mix it up and try to get the water in there but it just it won't hold water what is going on with it well add a little bit of lava sand and some compost add as much as an inch of lava sand to the surface add some compost mix that up and i think your problems will go away okay all right that's it Okay, thank you so much. And, Ronnie, we've got uh, about a minute and a half here, so let's be concise. Hi, Ronnie. Uh, Yeah. I have a couple of questions, but the second one I'll hold for another time. The first one is uh, Madagascar impatiens. Are they worth growing or not? I've never really had much luck with them. 
Well, it's actually New Guinea impatiens. Their claim to fame yeah. is they have a little bit bigger flower. They will tolerate a little bit more sun. Uh, they are definitely showy. They're going to get a little bit bigger than our standard impatiens do. But whether they're worth growing or not is uh, is strictly how much you like them. They are a little bit more brittle than uh, than the common impatiens, and uh, they're less forgiving if they stay too wet. But they are they are really showy, and some of them have attractive foliage. So if you like them, plant them. They're good plants. They also demand really really good drainage. So they're just a little bit pickier, but they're also a little bit showier. Okay, that's all I've got for now. Thanks a lot. We'll look forward to talking next week, and thank you. Hey, everybody, uh, appreciate you joining me for gardening. 